This program is part of Film Geek Radio. Visit filmgeekradio.com for more great shows. A great hand reached out of the dark and grasped mine for a moment, mightily and tenderly. I said to myself, the veil between, though very dark, is very thin. Hello and welcome to The Thin Place, the Film Geek Radio podcast devoted to discussions of religion, faith, and spirituality in film. This is episode number 22 for August 2012, and our subject is An Encounter with Simone Weil, the 2011 documentary written and directed by Julia Hazlitt. Your hosts for this episode, as usual, are Ken Morfield, that's Morfier in French, that's me, and Todd Truffin, that's me. How would you pronounce that in French? I don't think the Truffins ever got to France. Okay. <laughs> um, this is not a spoiler-free discussion, so if you have not yet seen the film, we encourage you to go out and do so, although as with many documentaries... Uh, spoiler is a relative term, but there are a few spoilers, uh, even for a documentary, so do be aware of that before you continue. Uh, we also want to give full disclosure, uh, Todd actually got a copy of this DVD because you made a small Kickstarter contribution to the film when they were raising money on Kickstarter. And I also got a nifty t-shirt. I guess that might be a good place to start with uh, what was it about the project that made you want to contribute to it in a Kickstarter campaign, and having seen the film now, did you feel as though your money was well spent? <laughs> That's the question, isn't it, whenever you fund a Kickstarter campaign? I had gotten you know, just a notice that there was this film, and uh, they were doing a Kickstarter campaign. Um, I believe the campaign itself wasn't so much to make the film, but was to get the final music rights um, and do some final editing. I think they'd shown it at a couple of festivals, and but before its official, you know, finished form, they had to get some things. I, I saw the trailer, and I, you know, I read the little Kickstarter thing, and part of it is I've always kind of been, had this interest in Simone Weil. It was either in college or shortly thereafter I'd read one of her books um, that I found very challenging and very fascinating, and the film seemed to promise a certain, you know, further delving into this this person's thought. Having now seen the film, it was in some ways very different than what I was expecting, um, but it was good. It, it certainly is the kind of film that you walk away with pondering things. And so, in as much as I was able to contribute to a film that helps people ponder, I am pleased. Good. I guess while we're giving disclosures, I should disclose, too, that I saw the film. This was my second viewing. I saw the film at the 2011 full-frame documentary film festival. And I also was fortunate enough to meet Julia Hazlitt there. And she did give an interview to one more film blog, so I will... Uh, go ahead and put a link to that on the great the Film Geek Radio website. Now, you had mentioned that in the description of the film, you felt like the film maybe promised some exploration of the thought. That seemed like a loaded way of describing it to it often when we say <laughs> promised. That implied it was not what I felt like I was promised. 
Well, I, I, I guess that sounds a little more negative than what I feel. Um, it seemed to me that the, the, the trailer and the, the descriptive text were kind of setting up, in some ways, a very typical biopic. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, follow this person's life, and along the way you obviously learn about what their philosophy and thought is. Um, and certainly the film has biographical information um, and, and a biographical arc to it, but it, it does more than that. And I, I think Hazlitt is making this effort to connect Vey with both herself and with our contemporary situation. Um, and I think you know, that goes a little beyond a normal biopic. Right. In so. contemporary film criticism terms, the film or the documentary is very self-reflective. Yes. That is to say, it is as much about Julia Hazlitt as it is about Simone Weil. The title of the film is An Encounter with Simone Weil. I think it actually maybe should be In Search of Simone Weil because <laughs> I'm not sure if the encounter ever happens or maybe In Search of an Encounter with Simone Weil. <laughs> Uh, that is to say, the the primary structure of the film seems to be about Hazlitt's search to understand or find an understanding of Simone Weil, and that includes some biographical information, some meditation and traditional talking head interviews with people who are familiar with Weil's works, but it also includes some stuff that we wouldn't necessarily expect in a straightforward educational or informative documentary about ways in which she went to pursue that. Well, and I think that that extra or that angle, to me, is all wrapped up in very early in the film. In fact, you know, the opening of the film, we don't even see Simone Weil. It's it's kind of a, a series of stock images of human suffering. And... You know, opens up with this question, what response does seeing human suffering you know, have on me? What, what am I supposed to do with these images and, and the knowledge that this kind of, you know, what various kinds of suffering are going on in the world? You know, certainly I think in our current themes, we see things from Afghanistan and Syria um, on the news all the time. What am I supposed to do with that? Hazlitt makes it very personal, um, dealing with some family issues of, of suffering as well. Um, and we start there. Yes. I think that those people who are expecting a more traditional informative documentary might be put off by that because they might be expecting the beginning to be, or read the beginning in a tr- traditional lens that says, okay, this is why the subject matter is still relevant today. Mm -hmm. The problems that Simone Bay wrote about are still present today. And then make a pivot towards a more traditional informative. Uh, But really, I think it is trying to develop a structure that's more self-reflective that says this is still a problem that I am suffering with or struggling with, which is, what should be my relationship with human suffering? And therefore, in my attempts to answer that question, I ran across Simone Weil, and that was very meaningful to me. Therefore, 
I'm going to make a film about my interactions with her work and less about her work. Right. Uh, and I think, you know, we need to be upfront about that. Uh, now I'm still okay with that. Sure. Because there's enough of her work within there that even if my temperament or my struggles are not the same as Julia Hazlitt's, ideally there should be something within that work that speaks to whatever struggles that I have because I do think that Vey's work is still very much relevant. But I do, I recognize even in hearing myself talk that there's going to be a certain kind of reader or viewer, maybe two kinds of viewers, who are going to look at that and say, yeah, let me fast forward to all those parts of Simone Bay talking about how much she loves, or, I'm sorry, let me fast forward past all of the times where Julia Haslam talks about her brother and how much she loves her brother. Right. And get to the parts where people are talking about Simone Bay. Yeah. And, and I can understand that. Um, certainly watching it, this was my first viewing. There were moments when I was kind of trying to figure out what was going on. You know, in terms of what, what's the film trying to do? What message is it trying to communicate? That being said, um, I was certainly willing to go along. Right. Um, and maybe that's just me as a, a viewer who's you know willing to, if someone's making some steps that are clearly not just incoherent, mm-hmm. um, there was definitely a direction going on here. I didn't maybe understand that direction at first, but I was willing to go with it. Right. So, I, I mean, I would like to maybe try to fairly quickly put a cap on that self-reflexive part of the bi- sure. the film so that we can talk about Simone Zweig's thoughts and some of the ways uh, that that affects us. The One of the more commented features of the documentary is a place in which Hazlitt hires an actress to play Simone Bay because she can, so that she can interview her. And it seems to be a part of this rising frustration of... I sense there's something there, but I don't know how to extract Mm -hmm. it. I found myself to be a little frustrated uh, because in one of the earlier parts of the biography, one of the ideas that's promoted about Bay is that she quit her job as a university professor, I think she was 25, to go work in a factory. Mm Mm-hmm. And there was a quote that says, unless one has placed oneself on the side of the oppressed, one cannot understand. Uh, You can understand suffering or oppression intellectually. You can describe it. But I, I sometimes wonder if part of what Hazlitt is struggling with is that recognition that they, in her own life, went beyond description toward actually doing something mm-hmm. about it, had enacted whatever epiphanies that she had in such a way that gave her life meaning. And just as so many Christians will study the words of Jesus and search for these epiphanies of, like, if I just study these words and understand these words, it's going to make my life so meaningful... Uh, but not necessarily say, well, how well am I acting out or doing the things that these words say? Uh, I felt that there was a little bit in the film of, in the documentary of, the answer must somehow or another lie in Simone Bay's 
words and in understanding them. And if I could only find the key to unlocking that, then I would know how to act. But sometimes that's a process, right? That's a, that's right. a hermeneutical circle where you act a little bit and that gives you more and deeper understanding into the words, which le- leads you to act on. And, and the remarkable thing about Vey, you know, you mentioned, you know, quitting her job to go work in a factory. I mean, this was a pattern for her. She was constantly, you know, getting herself, you know, basically in a, I mean, she grew up in a very affluent, you know, upper middle class type family and yet throws thing, you know, the easy, safe life away and will dive into something. You know, during World War II, her family was Jewish and they're in France. Germany's invaded. Um, her parents decide to flee to the United States because you know, they already know what's happening to the Jews under the Nazi rule. And they, you know, does this interesting thing. She doesn't want to leave because, you know, it's her country. It's her land. Um, but she also wants her parents to live. And so she goes with them to the United States. And then four months later, she's back in France, you know, working for the free democratic rule of France or, you know, whatever the organization was. But I mean, we see this constantly in her life where she's about the experience, the acting, the doing, the, and putting herself on the side of the oppressed. Right. Uh, I, there's a, one of her little quotes was, if you're having to pick between things, pick the thing that will cost you the most. Right. Um, so, I mean, she's, and I think one of the things that maybe ha- what you're getting at here is that Hazlitt's difficulty is that rather than whatever the doing might mean, you know, for us to understand Bay today, you know, she's, trying to get at her through books. She's trying to get at her through acquaintances, students that are still alive, you know, all these interviews. Right. And I want to be a little humble or careful about raising that complaint because, of course, I'm a university professor. I have not quit my job. Right. (laughs) And worked in a factory. So there's a part of me that says, okay, am I calling on Julia Hazlitt? to do something that I myself am not willing to do. How is she any different than me? And that takes me back to looking at Simone Bay's thoughts and Simone Bay's actions to saying, okay, well, is anyone's life or meaning or strategy for dealing with that a one-size-fits-all? Fits right. Uh, when you were giving that biography, there was a part of me that was thinking, okay, she has to be on the front lines. Mm-hmm. And, and I honor that and I esteem that. But does that mean everyone has to be on the front line? I mean, are there not generals that have to strategize right. and are equipped for doing that? Are there not support staff? Are there not, you know, um, are there not different roles to play if you're a Christian in the body of believers sure. in? Uh, if you have a more of a political orientation, less of a, in a in a movement, uh, does everyone have to have this individual uh, same role, mm-hmm. or is it the case in which there are in fact legitimate different roles to play? And part of the tragedy is that you know, we can't all make ourselves into Simone Bay. But the one place where I do probe a little bit more in terms of has that, is that there's a difference too between acknowledging that but but in sort of saying okay 
I think there is something in this person's life or action that resonates with me specifically, that answers something specifically that in a religious language is deep calling out too deep. Mm -hmm. And therefore, when I have that sort of response to something I'm reading, then I do think that perhaps it behooves me to be a little bit more intentional about not staying outside of it and just studying it, but really letting the work not just speak to me, but also guide me. Yeah, and it's, I mean, it, at one point I, I think, I'm, I'm forgetting now exactly who was making this point, I think it was the priest um, that Hazlitt was interviewing who really made the connection between what Vey was doing and to Christ's words, call to pick up your cross daily and follow me. And and he was very careful to say that, it, at least in life, Vey was not the kind of person that was scolding or, you know, saying, you have to be like me. It was more like, this is how I experience life, this is how I find truth, come with me. You know, it was much more of that invitation to this kind of like, rather than a, this is what you must do, which I think is important in terms of just thinking about Ve, Right. Um, and, and assessing her. Now, in terms of the film, you know, maybe that, you know, maybe one of the things that we see is Hazlitt wrestling with the struggle that I think all of us have when there is some sort of call to a very radical type of life which is there's got to be some other way to understand this. Or, or even just, I'm not understanding it myself. I just, how do I grip this? How do or, I understand uh, Or I'm afraid if I do understand it, I can't do it. Right. Uh, I couldn't do it. You had you'd made an interesting observation in the pre-notes about the interview that I hadn't picked up on. Well, the, yeah, the... I mean, this, this little bit where she hires the actress to... Portray Ve. I mean, you know, she's gone through all these interviews and she's gets is getting frustrated because she's like, I'm not finding this person, and she thinks maybe if I just hire an actress. And in the early stages of this process, the actress is just reading Ve's works out loud, so kind of giving, you know, embodying that, you know, the word on the page. And you know, and then the actress is dressed like Ve and trying, you know, what little there is that we have in terms of understanding her body movements and things, you know, doing those things. But at some point, um, Hazlitt decides to try a, a free, kind of a free form, um, you know, that, that I word that I'm not coming up with at the thing. Interview? Know. Not interview, more of a, um, just making things up as they go. Um, improvisation. That's the word. It was right on the tongue, right? There. In French, improvisation. <laughs> improvisation. And... And, and so they start, and they're filming this, and it goes back and forth for a little bit. And, and at one point, the actress stops. And, and what's fascinating to me, this, this moment in the film was just, I, it's like, I've been thinking about it ever since. Because it's very unclear whether the actress is speaking as Simone Vey, or whether the actress is speaking as an actress, and saying, I don't know what my line is. And, and she says to Hazlitt, I feel like there's something you want me to say, but I don't know what it is. And, you know, it's, it's that sense of, 
in the interviewer, and we've all had these moments where we're talking with someone and, and, and maybe we do, we want them to give us permission to do something. We want them to make us, you know, feel better, whatever we want from that person. And they're not giving it to us. But it was very strange because, and again, this is, I think this is part of the difficulty of this little exercise, is that it was very hard to tell whether the, the actress was just kind of saying, what's my line? Or whether the actress as Vey was kind of giving, you know, pushing back on Hazlitt a little bit and saying, you know, it's all here. I mean, what, what do you want me to say? What is it? You know, it feels like there's something you want to direct me to say. But if I'm Simone Vey, I can't say that. Right. Well, okay, so to maybe pivot a little bit from the self-reflective parts to the informative parts of the biography, and a good place to pivot might be to defend Hazlitt a little bit. The, the quote of Vey that gets her enthralled by Vey is, is attention... Did you write that one down? Yeah. Um, attention? attention is the um, rarest and purest form of generosity. Attention is the rarest and purest form of generosity. So I might say, if I was Julia Hazlitt, okay, this whole film is in fact doing what Vey says, right. not just trying to understand her, because Vey says, pay attention. And I am trying to pay attention to my brother. I am trying to pay attention to the suffering in the world around me. I am talking to other people, not just about Simone Bay's words, although I'm interviewing some people who knew Simone Bay, but also who are paying attention to things that are going on in the world right. and trying to grapple with this notion of, okay, does that really help? You know, does paying attention to what's going on in Guantanamo Bay change Guantanamo Bay, right? Uh, does it make any difference? And in fact, well, I, I'm, I'm, being, I'm playing a little bit of devil's advocate, <laughs> but hey, I made a film, so I did something. I'm paying attention to all of these issues. You know, what did you do? <laughs> right. Um, well, and, and there's this very interesting part um, about midway through, I think. Where in which in the thread where she's talking about her family situations and her brother very specifically who's uh, wrestling with depression, and and she says, you know, I I have paid attention. I've given him all kinds of attention. And in fact, there's even on film there's various. And he was helping to research, do research for the film, you know, helping her out. Um, and at at one point she says, it's like, okay, I'm paying attention, and nothing's changing. So, yeah, and she, she does ask the question, maybe paying attention means something different than am what... Am I doing it wrong? Yeah, am, am I... Or at what point, if I'm doing it right, do I say maybe Simone Bay was wrong? Yeah. And, you know, but she really wrestles with that question of, you know, what did Simone Bay mean by pay attention? Now, she, at that, that moment, she doesn't give an answer. She just kind of throws the question out there. Um, but, I, you know, I think that... You know, that might be one of the big questions of the film, is what does it mean to pay attention? So what does it mean to pay attention? Well, I don't know. I mean, if you look at Vey's life, you know, for her, certainly paying attention was to experience life with the oppressed. Um, in some sense, to then experience their oppression. And I would then say, give a voice. 
you know, one of, you know, part of Vey's bi biography, she was always very leftist in her politics, and yet she would never join any organization. She had a, a very deep suspicion of organizations. And so in France, she was often speaking to the French Communist Party. Um, and if, you know, from what we see in the, in the film, generally ripping them apart and saying, yes, you people claim to be for the people, but... And maybe that's part of paying attention. I am not, I'm not Roman Catholic. I have talked to a Roman Catholic, and I understand that there is some ambiguity as to whether or not she joined the Roman Catholic Church at the very end, right. you know, or towards the very end. She had a, well, yeah, and in terms of her Christian faith walk, she certainly had a long, well, as long as a 34-year-old person can have. Um, you know, when she decided to turn to Christianity, she, she struggled with the notion of joining any church. Um, and again, it's part of her deep-seated mis mistrust of man-made uh, or even God-made institutions or right. structures because, I mean, by definition, anytime you have a structure, there's an inside and an outside, and part mm -hmm. of her calling seems to be to associate with those on the outside, right? and that's difficult. I think when I think about that attention quote, there isn't anything implicit in it that says this will change anything. No. It says this is the rarest because it's difficult mm -hmm. and, you know, purest form of generosity. It's easier to give money or be than it is to give time or to give attention. Right. And I think part of that is because giving attention, one of the reasons it's so hard is confronts us with something we don't like to think about which is sometimes we're powerless. We can't change things. That giving attention doesn't change anything. So it confronts us with the truth, and we don't like the truth. Right. We don't want to think about it. And it's easier to say, I'm not going to pay attention to that, or I'm going to pay as little attention to that so that I don't have to think about it. And I can maintain the illusion that there are things that I can do something about. The film reminded me of... A positive but painful memory. My sister-in-law died of colon cancer about a year ago, and I had a week-long visit with her about two months before she died, a month and a half before she died. And I was talking to her about different things that different people could do for her. There's that whole cancer face thing, and we got onto this riff about how many people's expressions of consolation were actually draining to the person mm. with cancer because they ended up being about them and trying to make themselves feel better. I'm awkward. I don't know what to say. I don't know how to make you feel better. And the person who was suffering picks up on that and feels this pressure to say, it's okay, I'm okay, thanks for sharing that, you made me feel better, to pretend or to act as though their own suffering was diminished mm -hmm. so that you could feel better about, yeah, I did something. And also in a pragmatic way of I know people won't come around because they get tired of trying to do something. Did right. that help? Did that make you feel better? No, no, no. Well, <laughs> then eventually they start going away. And... 
I, so I was really trying to ask her in terms of, well, well, what is it that she wanted from people? You know, what was it that she most longed for? Obviously, one is to be healed from cancer, and that right. didn't happen because that's not necessarily within my power. And she talked to me about just having a witness of mm -hmm. being able to have, say someone that says, I see, I see what you're going through, and not to have an answer because maybe there were no answers or, uh, well, God would never do the, you know, people who are suffering have heard all sorts of pat answers that, that don't work. Uh, but that less and less what she wanted was advice or encouragement. Right. Uh, and more what she wanted was acknowledgement. Like, I see, mm. even if I can't do anything about it. And that's a kind of a, a, attention. Right. And certainly that word witness, she is a Christian and we we're both Christians, but we weren't talking about witness in a Christian sense. But I thought about it since then, in the year or so since then, about what it means to be a Christian witness. Mm -hmm. We tend to think it means going out and let me share the four spiritual laws with you. Right. But maybe it's as much about what a witness is in the legal terms. I pay attention and to let the people who are suffering say, not, hey, here's this secret prayer that you can pray mm -hmm. that's going to make everything better. But I see, I see what you are doing. And even if I can't do anything about it, even if I can't change it, even if I can't take it on myself by quitting my job and working in the factory mm -hmm. so that we're going through the same thing because I realized that sharing in your suffering would not alleviate your suffering right. any, that there is something in the human soul that wants to be recognized and wants to be acknowledged. And I think there's a deep spiritual truth in that vague quote that that really resonates with me and that I keep coming back to when I see the film. One of the, as you were talking, one of the images that kept coming back into my head was when Jesus was talking to his disciples and said, you know, I talk about, you know, some future time and says, I was in prison and you came and visited me. And they're like, you know, and then the whole doing the least of these, but that the prisoner really was what was sticking in my head because going to visit the prisoner in prison was not about getting them out. It was not, it's not about freeing them from prison. It was, but they just, they need someone to know you're a person, you're there. Right. And treating them as a human being, not just some, some piece of trash that's been locked away. And, Perhaps that's a little bit about what Vey is getting at here is that, as you said, that recognition. You are a person. Horrible things are happening to you. Well, or if it's not what Vey was getting at, that it's a part of the larger Christian whole mm -hmm. that we need to include rather than just all becoming Simone Vey's. Right. Uh, there was an interview with um, a cousin of Vey's. I. I want to say Ray, Ray Mon or Ray. I can't read my own notes because it's scribbling, but it says first cousin. And I put the note in there about, well, she, Simone, was always looking for remedy on a global scale mm -hmm. versus a local scale. And I actually think that verse, 
that you're talking about. It's much more of the local. It's much more. Let's talk about it in a local scale. And so I'm reading that through the filter of Richard Foster and Renabare and the spiritual disciplines that says your wheel needs to be round. You know, each of the streams are the Christian traditions. Yes, the social justice tradition has been largely lost and needs to be increased by people like Simone Weil. We need to... If there are people who are in prison unjustly, we need to work at getting them out. Right. Um, but we also need that personal, local, uh, incarnational tradition or evangelical tradition where we speak the word or the truth to that person, even if they're in prison, where it's not just the social justice tradition. Right. Uh, because then a lot of movements in the 20th century... I guess I'll make my conservative friends happy, right? Make that error of saying we've been lax in the social justice tradition. So let's go to this other extreme of a liberation gospel where it's all just about politics and God is always on the side of the oppressed and there's no sense of a holiness tradition or no, God calls upon you whether you are a victim of suffering or the victim of political injustice, not just to change political structures, but to change your own, you know, to change your own heart. And so I do think that there needs to be both. And I think that's something that Hazlitt is maybe unconsciously aware of, aware at, or the cousin is aware at in the film, because there is that recognition that in my experience, anyway, people who are, more committed to the social justice tradition than I am. I need to grow in that area. But who are most committed to that as opposed to the other streams. One of the things that leads to is burnout. Mm -hmm. Because the world is a fallen, broken world. And however however many structures you fix or change, more of them are broken every day and they're replaced with other broken structures that 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 line of need and human suffering is never going to is never going to end or go away uh, no matter how effective you are at implementing someone's ideology so for me there needs to be a there needs to be a complement to that global scale mm-hmm. or that political thinking well and and this actually brings us nicely you know into into the end game of the film, um, you know, Simone Weil did not live very long. And to say what she died when she was thirty-four, um, it was sixteen volumes. Yeah, wrote, so. yeah. I'm 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 a little behind. Yeah. Um, but uh, you know, in in essence, the way she died was problematic. Um, her death certificate, you know, essentially said that she killed herself. She had tuberculosis. There was a certain treatment prescribed that required her to eat a certain amount of food, and she didn't. Um, out of a conviction that she would not eat any more than what the French soldiers were getting their rations with. And, and I know there's been some question as to whether or not she had accurate information about that and whatever. But she was making a principled stand, I will only eat this much food. And it killed her. Uh, or at least the tuber- tuberculosis killed her. She did not get well. And Hazlitt, coming toward the end of the film, you know, essentially says that they ended up in a philosophical dead end, is the phrase that's used. And, and I wonder about that. Um, that was one of the things that kind of struck me. Um, and, you know, and here's kind of the big spoiler alert. One of the things that Hazlitt 
is wrestling with through the whole film is her brother, who is battling depression. And by the end of the film, um, he commits suicide. And so I, I, and she's obviously devastated by this. Um, and that, that idea of a, that they leads to some sort of philosophical dead end. I'm not sure what Hazlitt was doing with that. Um, right. You know, is, are we saying, you know, is she saying that, yes, they're, you know, Vey's thought, philosophy, just doesn't go, lead us anywhere, it doesn't fix anything, um, you know, what does it mean to be a philosophical dead end, I guess, is the question. That's, that's a tough question. I, I want to make one pseudo-correction. Uh, you had said her brother suffers from depression. Yeah. Uh, the word that they use repeatedly in the film is anxiety. Oh, okay. Now, those may be synonyms for a great right. many people. I'm not talking as a clinical diagnosis. Sure. But uh, the fact that it seems to me peculiar or noticeable that she makes a point over and over again, and he himself in his interview is no, fair. That's I good. suffer from anxiety, right. and because that can be a very different sure sort of uh, thing. Uh, in, in terms of the philosophical dead end, I I don't know if Hazlitt was necessarily thinking along this road, but I personally would think that that that's one of the problems with, not that there's something wrong with her thought, but I'm, I'm going to go back to Foster and Renovare, of trying to have one strain of thought or one glimmer of truth or one mm -hmm. spoke of truth, but being so committed to that that you won't pick up on other ones. I don't know. Some people will say this is just sort of an intellectually neat way of getting out of or justifying certain things. But I think about that verse about you know loving your neighbor as you love yourself. Well, for that verse or that principle to work, you have to love yourself. Right. And, okay, I understand that the French soldiers didn't have access to the food or the medicine, but if she had access to the food and the medicine and the French soldiers were suffering, would she have not given it to them? So the fact that she did means that makes one wonder, is there either a kind of spiritual pride or arrogance that's like, no, I can do this, mm -hmm. you know, this is good enough for me because I'm on this exalted plane, but the rest of the world, you know, exists on this particular plane where they can't. Or is there a recognition, since I've quoted Foster a number of times, of, uh, I think about George MacDonald in his book, um, Robert Falconer, and Robert Falconer lives in one of the poorest areas of London, and he is all the time uh, acting as a missionary there, okay. but just confronted with the overwhelming <laughs> needs of the urban poor, and how much of the time that he spends trying to get people who are there to give to each other mm. rather than let me go after the rich people and try and shame them into them. Because part of it is he recognizes 
the rich hold on to their stuff. But part of it he recognizes he's never going to have enough, and he's always going to end up saying no to, to some people. Right. Uh, and in doing that, he learns or recognizes that the poor are not just problems for me to solve. There are people for me to help grow who have their own struggles and their life needs to be one of abundance and spiritual growth where they're making autonomous choices, where they love their neighbors and they love themselves and are not just the masses, the flyover people, right. the, the sort of, um, but, but are in fact, uh, or back to that global scale versus local scale. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, what's more local than yourself if you don't take care of yourself? I mean, even Jesus took care of himself, right? right? Jesus had more resources, had food that we know not of. But there were times in which I'm sure he stayed out for hours and hours healing the poor. He could have stayed out for hours and hours more, but he said, no, I need to go out into the mountain and you know, retreat. He may have had a radically different idea of what taking care of himself means. Mm-hmm. And I think you know the the worry that I have is that taking care of myself can that can be too easy of an excuse to go there and just right. sort of say, well, I can't do anything about that because I'm taking care of myself, or be like the Pharisees and say what I would give you is Corbin, so um, I, I'm not going to give it. Right, but there's yeah. got to be a middle ground between those two extremes of I need to hoard everything in case I have a need, and to say I can never expend anything on myself. Because I never have needs, or because right. my needs are less important than anyone else's. Well, yeah, I mean, we see in the Gospels that Christ was doing both. He was out with the poor, with the sick, healing them, and he was taking time for himself um, mm-hmm. and taking care of his own needs. So, you know, he gave us a balanced model, but it, I think you're right. It, following that, as in following Christ in just about anything, is really difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it is easy to maybe go to either one, one side or the other. You know, there's certainly any number of stories of ministers who burn out because they're not taking care of themselves or their families. Um, likewise, it's very easy to say, yeah, throw up your hands and say, there's nothing I, I can't do with this all, so I'm just going to go take care of myself. Right. The older I get, the more I, think, I realize that I think we are, I don't know if this is just me or if this is human beings in general, but we have the tendency to go to extremes. We always want to go to one extreme or the other. We always want a rule rather than a principle. You know, I've mentioned, I don't know how many of the listeners would know, I've mentioned on Facebook that I, I took a vow of silence for until November, until the election was over, where I wasn't going to speak about politics or forward any particular things. And one of the things that really impressed me as I was thinking about the discipline of silence as uh, Richard Foster quoted, I think it was Thomas Akempis, I could be wrong, but said that, it's looking at that verse in James about you know, the man who guards the tongue. Oh, okay. the tongue. But he says, it's actually easier to be silent than it is to be in control of your speech. It's, it's mm. easier to go to the extreme of, I'm just not going to say anything or I'm not going to do anything because I don't have to think about it then. Right. I don't have to think about what is the right thing to say. Where is my heart in this particular thing? And I can measure it. Am I doing it? Am I not doing it? It's easier to go to the other extreme of, 
okay, I'm going to be committed to this political ideology and I'm going to forward everything that <laughs> advances my agenda or makes an argument on the side that I want to get it out there. Uh, the hardest thing is to find that middle ground where I'm being intentional about every word that I speak or right. uh, things that I speak. And, I, you know, maybe the same thing is true with attention or with, you know, suffering that it, it's easier to get into that burnout mode because it's always easier to just reflexively go to the extreme of, well, other people are more important than myself or the extreme of, well, I'm more important than anyone else, of finding that middle ground of saying, no, I'm no more or less important than anyone else. Right. And my interaction with the rest of the world helps me see that and helps me live that. But I, again, I don't know if it's just me or if it's people in general, but I always find myself it's easier to go to one pole or the other, and it's so hard to strike a balance in this or in any other thing. And so maybe that's part of the dead end, is that it's like I honor Simone Bay, I honor what she was doing, but there's a part of me that wonders if, okay, you can't sustain that over the course of, is it a legitimate answer, or is this this challenge to say, no, live your life in such a way that you will burn out and, and not have anything left? Well... In a sports metaphor, I do want to leave it all out on the field. I don't want to right. go in. You know, what am I saving it for? <laughs> um, but in another sense, just in a strategic, to continue the sports metaphor, there I've seen plenty of basketball teams in the March tournament who come out and the first five minutes they're jacked up on adrenaline and they're playing way over their head, but they can't sustain it. And by the fourth quarter, they're out of gas and they end up failing a lot more miserably than if they had been strategic about using right. their resources and managing their game. You know. Well, and and for me, and, and this has been one of my questions about Simone Weil from long before this film is there is that part of me that says it's it's wonderful to have these convictions um, that she had about how she was going to live her life, but at some point, don't you need to be strategic and say, do I do the world more good by strictly adhering to this rule um, that's going to kill me by the time I'm 34, or do I do more good in the world by being a little bit more strategic and living longer to do more work. Um, and I mean, obviously we're, we're all not in situations where we have some control over when we die, but this was actually a case where there was at least some control. Yeah. It reminds me of the quote, I think that's attributed to one of the Wesleys, either Charles Wesley or John, Jonathan Wesley. Yeah. One of the Wesleys about work as hard as you can make as much as you can, meaning money, so that you can give as much as you mm -hmm. can. It's not bad to make a lot of money. The more money you make, the more you can you, give. You can help. <laughs> uh, and over the course of a lifetime, you might make a lot more money that you can give or marshal a lot more resources that you can share than you will if you're always living on the edge of poverty in that burns you out or tires right. you or something like that. All right, Todd, any, anything you want to add to? Um, I think, I, would, I think you know, one of the things I'm noticing here about our conversation is, and I think this is a, a, a credit to the film, is that we have spent all of our time talking about ideas. Um, and 
very little time talking about the production. And I think that's it, it's a well-made film. Um, it really it will help you. I, it generates lots of conversation. It's, it's a hard film. Um, I, I especially found some of the, the footage of human suffering that is shown. I found it to be very difficult. Um, and so, you know, be prepared for that, I guess, if, as you're going in. But um, it is certainly a, a, a worthy film to pay attention to. On that note, I'll say thank you, Todd, and thank you, everyone, for listening. If you have questions or comments about this episode, feel free to visit us at the Thin Place at filmgeekradio.com. We have a webpage where you can leave comments as well as listening to the episode. If you've downloaded this episode on iTunes, you can still go back to the webpage, listen to it there, or leave notes. You can also send us an email at the Thin Place at filmgeekradio.com. You can follow me, Ken on Twitter at twitter.com backslash Ken Moorfield, or read my reviews, including my review of An Encounter with Simone Bay and interview with Julia Hazlitt at the number one morefilmblog.com. This has been a Film Geek Radio production. Film Geek Radio! Yeah!